0: Welcome to this Mount Pleasant Baptist Church podcast recorded at our Burgoon campus. We're glad you've joined us and we pray that the Lord will speak to you and encourage you through this message. We're beginning a new series uh, that we've entitled uh, But God, uh, which uh, we're trusting will be a good series and we can trace it back to a few months ago when I was speaking From uh, the book of Ezekiel, uh, you know, where uh, Ezekiel had this vision of a valley of dry bones, a, a valley full of dead people. And Paul in Ephesians 2 said this He said, You were once dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in your sins. I then innocently remarked that the scriptures are full of but God statements. And this is one of the most beautiful buts in the New Testament. And I was unaware, innocently unaware that some people I heard afterwards were thinking of beautiful buts, B-U-T-T-S, I thought, goodness me, you just don't know what's going through people's minds. (laughs) I was actually trying to make a point (laughs) that everyone may seem to be in a hopeless situation. We may seem to be in this hopeless situation. Uh, Things seemingly to be hopelessly wrong, but God is there. God is always there. God finds a way when there seems to be no way. Never take God out of the equation. Never discount God. He is the foundation of all that is. And he has the last word on everything. Praise his name. Apart from God, we're devoid of hope. That's the reality. And so the scriptures are full of beautiful buts. B-U-T. And afterwards Nick uh, suggested that the but God statements in scripture could in fact form just a beautiful series for us to look into. And so it eventually took place uh, after we had gone through the Grace Under Pressure series. uh, Where we looked at Joseph and the life of Joseph and the God's sovereign hand at work there in the life of Of Joseph, which we read about in in Acts 7 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And of course, Graham finished last week the series with uh, Genesis 50, you remember, and verse 20. You intended to harm me but God intended it for good for the saving of many lives. So we're going to take the next 8 weeks to look at eight life-changing I believe but statements in the scripture in the scriptures. So today we're starting with the apostle John's words in John 1:18. Very familiar words. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Though no one had ever seen God, His invisible, the invisible God, has been made known through the creation. You know, Paul in Romans, beautiful verse in Romans, Romans one twenty where Paul said, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But now, in Jesus, God has been made personal. God has been made personally known. To us in Jesus, in flesh and blood, made known personally to humanity and in humanity, which is amazing, isn't it? To humanity, in humanity, by humanity, he's been made known to us. See, we can know about people, um, we can read about people, we can read in books, in reports. In movies, in art, uh, in music, we can know about people. But when we come to meet them personally, that's an altogether different thing, isn't it? Have you notice that? Yes. That personal relationship is very different. It's very, very different. And so God, we can know things about him. We can read about him, we can know about him, we can know him through the creation, but we cannot really know God, not personally through the creation. We can't know him um, unless we meet him, unless we encounter him in his person, because we are persons, we're people, and we're made to encounter the personal God. Psalm 19 says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands." Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. But John is now saying something new has happened. Jesus has made God personally known. Like the writer to the Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times, so through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And of course, those ways were through the law and through the events of Israel's life, through the creation. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. You see, God has finally spoken to us in himself. He has nothing else to give. There's nothing else to say. There's nothing else he can give of himself. He has finally spoken to us in himself, in Jesus. And Paul says in Colossians, the son who is the image of the invisible God has now been made known in Jesus. Why? That we might not only know about God, but that we might know him and live. Beautiful. But because of our human condition, we're in the dark. We're absolutely dependent on God revealing to us who Jesus really is. We can't work that out ourselves because we're in the dark. God is light, but we're in the dark. And Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah and others, various prophets. And it's the same today. People would say Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good example. Jesus had a follow-up question. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in Christ heaven. See, God's been revealed in Jesus, but we cannot see it in and of ourselves. We need God to reveal who Jesus really is. Now, God revealed to John the Baptist who Jesus was, and John had this privilege of being the very first person to introduce Jesus to the world. How good was that? The first person. And the four gospel writers, they seek to try and locate Jesus in their known history. They're trying to, try to present something that's new. They're trying to locate Jesus in their known history as a basis, really, to then announce this new thing that had happened. And we read that Mark goes back to the prophets, to Isaiah, to establish who Jesus is, and then he begins with John the Baptist. Matthew goes back to Abraham. To establish Jesus' birthline in the nation of Israel and then begins with John the Baptist. Luke goes back to Adam, so he goes further back to establish Jesus' birthline in all human history and then begins with John the Baptist. And the Apostle John in the fourth Gospel, he goes back to before the creation, before Genesis 1 1, to locate Jesus in eternity past and then begins with. John the Baptist In the first verse in John's uh, 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 apostle John's Gospel, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things came into all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. And there was a man. ...sent from God, and his name was John Baptist, so that through him all might believe. See, John the Apostle goes back before the beginning of creation, before Genesis 1-1, to in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And then introduces John the Baptist as the man sent to introduce the person who was the Word who is the word, was in the beginning, was the original thinker, was the original creator, the person at the centre of the universe. Wow. What a privilege for John the Baptist. In verse 14, John the Apostle says, the word, that word that was in the beginning before there was anything else, that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became something that he was, was not in all eternity. He became a human person. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. See, God's glory is his unfailing love And faithfulness. God is light, but God is love. Which John had seen in God becoming one of us and putting a towel around his waist and washing not only John's feet, but the disciples' feet before going to the cross and being crucified for us all. What love! God is love and God is light. Through the wor- Though the world was made through him and he was in the world he made, the world didn't recognise him. No one did of themselves. Darkness did not comprehend the light. It could not. Humanity in their darkness couldn't find their way back to God. So God became one of us to bring us back into God's heart. You see that? He became one of us to bring us back because we couldn't bring ourselves back into the heart of God. God's heart's always been to dwell with us. And that's why in the Old Testament we have the tabernacle and the temple. These were his dwelling places, the places of his presence. But now He has dwelt right with us as one of us. He has walked our streets and our neighbourhoods. God Himself has. He did in Jesus, and He did it so that His Spirit might now dwell in us. That God might not only be with us, but that God might be in us. In verse eighteen, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. See, something radically new happened in time. And this is not a theological statement that John was making. He was an eyewitness. He was actually saying what he had seen and what he knew for himself. he'd seen and what had been revealed to him. See, John saw and he understood what the writer of the Hebrews said. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And of course, John, you remember in 1 John, I love 1 John. He said in 1 John, we have seen with our eyes... Our hands have handled, we've touched the word that was in the beginning. The word of life has appeared to us. In him is eternal life. Jesus is the Son of God. Our fellowship is with God. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our brother. And in him we're new creations. We're no longer in Adam. We are sons of God in Adam by natural birth, but now have been made anew in Jesus by his spirit. New creations. John knew that the new creation had come. And Jesus says, sorry, John says, Jesus came that we might receive him. Many didn't, did they? but to receive him that that we might become sons and daughters of God, born not only of human descent or human decision, but born of God himself by the Spirit. Jesus came to create a new humanity, a new humanity in himself. God, who, who in the beginning created humanity, in Adam and Eve, has now personally come in flesh and blood to recreate humanity in himself, for us to come into him, the true human person. So to understand why he came... See, we often don't go back to Genesis. We kind of focus on Jesus and the New Testament. But really to understand why did Jesus come... We need to know that big story, you know, that God in the beginning created a very good universe, didn't he? Yes. It was very good. And uh, his fingerprints, as we know, as creator are all over it. The grain of his loving relational character is etched into the creation for all to see and for all to enjoy. And, of course, God made us. Human beings, look at us, look at us. We're made in the image of God, in his likeness, to be like him and to be like him to one another and to the world. Amazing, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made that God could live in us. We're made that God could become one of us. How incredible is that, each and every person, but the first couple decided that, uh, well, despite all of that, they were deceived by the serpent and decided to go alone, to break from God and work life out themselves to establish for themselves what was right and what was wrong, what's the best way to live, and what should not shouldn't we do. And the consequences, we read, and as we know for ourselves, have been disastrous. Every successive family was affected. Separation from God, the source of life. See, God is the source of life. Separation from him ultimately must lead to death. There's no other source of life. Apart from him, there is nothing. And so God, in Genesis 3... Uh, right after the four verse 14 and 15, reveals something. He actually announces the gospel in the beginning, right there when they fell away. He announced the gospel by declaring that despite death entering into humanity, humanity wasn't finished. See, the angels in heaven would have thought it was all over. Surely you will die. You remember? But God promised that a human being a human person, an offspring of a woman would triumph over sin and death and rescue humanity to bring humanity back to God. And so God was promising that a human person would emerge in history and while his heel will be bruised, he will crush the serpent's head, we read... So that's why the human story is complex. It's full of highs and lows and sorrows and joys, frustrations and difficulties. But God said a human person, the seed of a woman, will ultimately overcome all that is against humanity. And so began the story of the seed of the woman in Scripture, in the Scriptures that ultimately finds its fulfilment in Mary through the virgin birth of Jesus our Saviour, Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. See, it's only God could deal with sin. Only God could deal with sin. That's why he came, became one of us. See, God called Abraham to have a people for his name in the earth to establish a line of faith and a family, a nation that would bless the earth and, uh, and uh, a bloodline through which the Redeemer, which Jesus would come into the world. There were 14 generations from Adam from Abraham to David, and there was 14 generations from David to the exile, and there was 14 generations from the exile to the birth into the world of Jesus. All promised, all laid out in scripture. Jesus appeared in history in time and space, the eternal God in human flesh for all to see. When John the Baptist said, look, there's my cousin over there. There he is. He's coming, to, walking towards us. Oh, yes, I see him coming. Look again. There's God walking on the earth. He's your cousin, but he's God. In flesh and blood. Behold the man. See, the two can coexist And so the fullness of God can dwell in each one of us. Jesus is the great revelation of that truth to us as he walked in human flesh. And John was the first person to introduce Jesus to the world, not because he grew up with Jesus and he was his cousin, but God had to reveal to John who Jesus was. He was not only a fellow human being. And John knew that he was the prophet foretold in Isaiah Remember he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. I baptise with water, but among you stands one you do not know, who baptises in the Holy Spirit of God. He has higher rank than me. He was born, uh, although born six months after me, he existed before me, has existed from all eternity. And so how did John introduce Jesus to the world, his cousin? How did he summarise his CV, if you like? (laughs) Difficult job, what phrases, what words, what titles would you use for the very first introduction of God as a human person in the world? How would you introduce him? Well, John introduced Jesus to the world for the very first time by saying, here is the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. A term was introduced for the very first time. The Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, sounds strange to us as an introduction, but John was connecting, of course, with the culture. Everyone in Israel understood the Passover and the place of lambs in their daily sacrificial system. It's like us saying something like Facebook or iPhone. Everyone knows what you're talking about. It doesn't need to be explained. Everyone understands. But John was wanting to say something very new and different. That Jesus himself was the Passover lamb. And by inference, the long-awaited Messiah. Behold, John says, translated in the King James, look, for not only see with these eyes, we'll never get there with these eyes. We can't get there with these eyes. Look, understand and perceive with the eyes of your heart that this Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, God and humanity perfectly reconciled in Jesus. It's never happened before. It happened in him. And so this very first introduction of Jesus is significant. It speaks of the central reason that God came and paints the all-embracing picture of salvation. And it uses four terms. The phrase, John chose four terms in the phrase, I just want to very briefly touch on. He said world, or don't reverse order. World. See, so the word for world here is cosmos, but it's actually referring to the whole order, uh, of um, the whole kind of human order which, ex- which exists. So the world as people exist in hostility against God. This is a worldwide, as you know, human society, organising themselves apart from God. We can do it ourselves. We're going to work it all out ourselves. So he came to that world. And that's the world that we call the secular world. It's the world that we live in. And it's the world that ignores God and resists his loving and his life-giving rule. That's the world that he came for. Sin, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's not just talking about sins, plural, here, like stealing or murdering or whatever else notice it's, it's singular he's talking about sin itself he came to take away sin itself the condition the sinful condition from which all sins flow it's a condition see the human condition is about self-centeredness it's about me It's about what I think. It's all about me. See, sin is this deeply rooted need to be our own gods, to be God. To put ourselves at the centre, to be in control, to be in control. Which colours every relationship and it colours everything we do, whether we know it or not and it flies in the face of the life of God. It's the opposite. God's life is the life of love, which is other-person-centred. Other-person-centred. It's the opposite. The sinful condition has the same dynamic as we see in drug addiction, this focus on fulfilling self-centred desires habitually. Can't get out of it. It leads to the abuse of others, to the abuse of ourselves, and, uh, of course, holds people in bondage. It's, uh, it's got this symptom of denial. We just deny it. And so we have an inability to get out of it. Take away. See, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And See, the verb here means to take up and carry and to carry off. So John sees Jesus as the one who has come to take up the sin of the world and to carry it as his own and to carry it off, that is to deal with it once and for all, for us. See, the wages of sin is death. It's death. But God is the source of all life. So sin could only ever be dealt with within God himself, who is life. Couldn't be dealt with in any other way. This is the love of God, to come to rescue us in himself. The Lamb of God. See, there are many pictures, uh, images and events in Israel's history concerning lambs. Uh, which would have been in John's mind. There are many of them, but I just want to mention three very briefly. The first is the lamb that God provides in Abraham and Isaac's story, which you know well in Genesis 22, where God commanded Abraham, do you remember, to sacrifice his one and only son on Mount Moriah. And Isaac asked, Father, we have the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the offering and Abraham replies God will provide himself the lamb my son and of course he did, he provided a ram out of the bushes in those days as a substitute but on that same mountain, Mount Moriah God provided himself the lamb For us all. Two thousand years later it was to deal with this condition. So it's like John was saying, Look, the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, God Himself, God's one and only Son. And secondly, the Passover lambs in the Exodus story, where you know God freed Israel from bondage. There in Egypt, he instructed Moses to tell the people to take an unblemished lamb, to kill the lamb and to apply the blood on the doorposts. Remember? Spread it on the doorposts. And God said that when I see the blood, I'll pass over those homes and the plague, the the death, the plague of death will pass over you and you'll be freed. And of course they were and they celebrated this great deliverance for years as an annual uh, feast. See, John was saying, Jesus is the one and only Passover lamb whose blood can finally deliver us. They were celebrating this for thousands of years, slaughtering lambs. And this would have been probably, the, the exodus would have been at least 1,500 years, probably around about 1,500 years later where Jesus embodied everything that that sacrifice meant in himself. And, of course, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which I love, the servant who voluntarily bears the judgment of sin in our place. In verse 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. See, John was saying that Jesus is that lamb, the suffering lamb who bore our sins, as foretold there by Isaiah 700 years earlier. See, these lambs and more would have been in John's mind as he announced Jesus, the Lamb of God, God himself in humanity, who takes away the sin of the world. See, John was saying, look, God's own lamb, God's own lamb, no need to offer any more lambs or goats or bulls we well, do anything to earn your salvation. You don't need to do anything. For God is offering up himself as the lamb. He is the great final sacrifice in human flesh for all humanity who fulfills all that is foreshadowed in all of the Old Testament prophets and sacrifices. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, "It is finished." It's over. It's done. It's finished. No one has seen God, but God has revealed himself in Jesus. This is a but that changes everything. It changes everything. Our communities, our lives, the course of history, our destiny, everything is changed by this one event in history. God becoming human flesh. Everything that needs to be done about sin and death has been done by Jesus. We don't need to earn any approval of the Father. The Father's arms are wide open in Jesus for us to come. We don't need to hide anymore. See, the power of the sin condition, it's powerful, the sin condition, in people's lives. It's been overcome. These deeply rooted patterns of sin can be uprooted. The axe has been laid to the root of old Adam. It's been done. Our part is to yield to Jesus and allow him to rule and to reign in our lives. It's a beautiful rule and reign, but to reign in our lives that we might be changed, that we might ongoingly be changed. None of us have made it. None of us are perfected yet. But John ends the gospel with this. All this has been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, we might be thinking, and you might think, well, I know God exists. You might know about God. I've been there, we've all been there. But he came that you might know him personally and that you might have life in his name. That's why he came. So I've chosen a song to finish that I believe puts into words an appropriate response for us to what God, I think, has been speaking to us all this morning. So let's stand, shall we, together and respond and just allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear from you. If you would like prayer, please submit a prayer request at mounties.org.au forward slash prayer or send an email to communications at mounties.org.au and one of our team will be in contact. Have a great week.